People, welcome to week six of the NFL. This is the North London 40 podcast. Woo! My name is James Hamlin. My name is Inye Evaniga. It has been another crazy seven days in NFL land. We are back to break it all down for you, give you the analysis, give you the hows, the whys, the whats, and the maybes in the way that we do each and every week. We've also got a special guest on the pod later. Repeat special guest. Yep. Two-time, two-time champ. Our guy Joe Cohen, our Cleveland Browns fan, is going to come back on not only to talk about Cleveland's first win of the season, but also to break down the absolutely awesome documentary that is Cleveland 95 of Football Life. So he's going to be coming on later on and we're going to talk to him, so stick around for that one. Bit of housekeeping before we get into this. This is North London 40. We are breaking down the NFL each and every week for you, the great British podcast digesting public. We go into the NFL. We break it down the way that you want to understand it. You want to hear it. Talk about what's going on. All you need is right here, people. At NLDN40 is the Twitter. Thanks for all the tweets that keep coming in. We love them. Hearing what people are up to. Interacting during games. Thank you ever so much for that. All the people that follow us on Twitter interact with us on Twitter. Mm-hmm. iTunes is where you get the podcast. Just type in North London 40 on iTunes. Mixcloud forward slash NLDN40. If you want to stream the shows, if you want to listen to them directly on your phone without downloading, Mixcloud is a spot. NLDN40.tumblr.com. That also streams straight to our Twitter as well. All sorts of um, cool stuff on the Tumblr. And we don't stop on that. All sorts of weird and wonderful things about the NFL, so recommend you subscribing to that as well. And NorthLondon40 at gmail.com. Those are all the channels, people. This is how you hit, hit us up. You've got no excuse. Make sure you listen. Tell a friend to tell a friend to tell a friend. Get involved. It's your show. You know, any feedback, we appreciate it. We want to know um, what's going on with you, how you think your team's getting on, how you think what you think your team should improve, how your fantasy team's doing, etc., etc. So, week six in the NFL. We're going to break down the key games in a bit. Maybe not so much the standard of the games themselves, but the upsets. This sport is unpredictable, people. We keep telling you that. Trust us. All you fantasy owners out there and all you gamblers will know this more than anyone. This sport is unpredictable, but this is what makes it but the best sport in the world. It's unpredictable in a good sense. It's not like the championships, which is unpredictable, but no one actually really cares. This is good, unpredictable. So before we get into the week six action, a few things happened from a London perspective this week. We had a visit from Mr. Nice Tash himself, Shad Khan from the Jacksonville Jaguars. I loved his work with Shaka. <laughs> I love his work on the Turkish Delight advert. He brought Josh Goby with him over to do a promo at the England San Marino game. We talked about that last week. We're not going to go into that. So they came over on a bit of a promo tip for the Jacksonville Jaguars mm-hmm. and announced their opponent for 2013, which is going to be one of your favourite franchises out there, the San Francisco 49ers. He is. He's bringing the Bay to the UK. He is. That's the 27th of October 2013. The Jags are facing the Niners. Remember, the Jags are here for the next four seasons. Mm-hmm. So that's their first opponent. Announced quickly. Hopefully tickets for that will go on sale Pretty much straight after the uh, game that's happening in two weeks' time. If you do buy a ticket, make sure you go on YouTube afterwards and learn how to ghost ride the whip. Because I want to see the Wembley car park full of people doing hyphy moves. You heard that, peeps. Bring the bay to Wembley. <laughs> that, that's it. We've made it money. That's right there. Print it up already. It is. A few other announcements as well. Sunday, 28th of October, not only is it the St. Louis Rams versus the New England Patriots, a game we were obviously looking forward to wholeheartedly and have been hyping up on the pod, the NFL also announced that there will be a fan rally the day before on the Saturday, so that's Trafalgar Square from 12 midday. The teams are going to be down there, the cheerleaders, a few celebs from yesteryear are going to be down there. Yeah, talking it up. So it's Trafalgar Square, get down there, get down there in your team shirts, remember... We want to see your pictures of the team shirts. The more ironic, the better. Yeah. The Atlanta Michael Vicks, we want to see them. Please do. Also, just take pictures of people in jerseys because it's been quite quiet recently. The weather is changing because, let's be honest, an NFL jersey is a jersey that you need to wear with a shirt underneath. Hoodie's good. Hoodie's good, yeah. A hoodie in the NFL shirt. Like It, it, it requires a layer of, of warmth underneath, and right yep. now we're hitting that sweet spot. So Trafalgar Square on the 27th is going to be full of those 
shirts. It is. It is. From the sublime to the ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And um, remember, send us your pictures in at NLDN40. Uh, we, w- we will definitely be retweeting those and throwing those up on our Tumblr. Want to see that. And also, the tailgate party has been announced. It's, it's taking place from early on the Sunday... Decent food has been promised. Wembley gets a lot of bad rep for its food. It's just, well, it's not really food. It's disgusting. So they're bringing their own food in, getting outside caterers, bringing American food, barbecuing. Prawn sandwiches? <laughs> Prawn sandwiches are not welcome. This is the real deal, my friend. Edamame? <laughs> You've got to cater for the London crowd. It's the hummus. These are the things that we need to know. It's true. So try to recreate the tailgate experience down there. Merchandise, players, NFL, interactive, itty. NFL interactivity. Itty? What? <laughs> NFL interactivity. That sounds like something completely different, but hey. It's all going to be down there. So get down there early for the game. Don't have tickets. Tickets are available online. So yes, pick up some of those and get down to the tailgate party as well. Check out some of that. Start networking. Start meeting other NFL fans. It's a, it's a great opportunity. Only happens once a year. Or does it? Oh, I like what you did there. I like what you did. The rumour mills were in full swing this week mm-hmm. about a second NFL game. First of all, we had Mr. Khan going, I want to try and have two regular season games. But on Sunday, we got the bombshell. And what was it? The Minnesota Vikings could also be coming to London in, in 2013. In September. Not so we're going to have a September game and an October game. I don't think I could take the excitement. We are inches away from having our favourite player in London. It's true. So we were just talking about this before the pod. Is there a chance that in the limited time they were here, Lamborghini Percy, Harvin, could become London's most favourite sportsman? It's, I, I can see him doing. I can see, honestly see him doing. But first of all, who, who would you say are the top three? Right now, mm-hmm. Mo Farah. Yeah. Mo Bop. He's on those Virgin ads right now, so getting it in. A Londoner. Sports Arsenal, despite that. Londoner through and through. Trained with the Arsenal team before the Olympics. Just a general top dude. Top mm-hmm. Londoner. Bradley Wiggins. Yep. Despite being born in Ghent. The gr- London borough of Ghent, though. Yeah. Grew up in Maida Vale. Represented Camden, age 12, for... Um, Bicycling. Did all his bicycling at an early age at the Herne Hill Velodrome. Not the Hackney Marshes. That's not where Harry Redknapp discovered him. We can't really think of a London's favourite footballing sportsman. If he was playing in the team to the level he was playing last season and he was still England's skipper, Mm -hmm. London's third most popular sportsman would probably be Scotty P. Yeah, I agree with you. But he's sort of out of the fray right now. He's also lost his hairstyle stakes in football to uh, yeah. Leighton Baines. True. So, Lamborghini Percy, mm-hmm. Harvin, could join those two in that pantheon for a short space of time. Yeah. He's that good. See, well, I actually haven't heard him be interviewed, but I'm assuming that when he finds out that his nickname is Lamborghini Percy, that he will rise to the occasion. He'll He'll charm... Whatever British media will be around him, and he'll rise. You will see him every day in the Evening Standard. I absolutely agree. We're going to make that happen. Yeah. So that's not confirmed yet, but they're talking them up. So that'll be four teams between September and October 2013. Don't think I can take the excitement. It's going to be good. It's going to be really, really good. It's going to be real, people. It's going to be real. Something to look forward to. Let's get into week six. Yes. Of the NFL. One of the reasons why week six was so great, it was down to the upsets. Mm-hmm. All the things that we thought were going to happen didn't happen. And vice versa. Let's start as we do each week. We'll, we'll start through the early games and then, and, then we'll, and then we'll work our way through. The week starts early as it starts early every week. The Thursday night game, the Friday morning game. We've got no real feel for how many of you are diehard in that Thursday night, Friday morning game. Yeah. We watch it on delay. We catch it the next day. We've got jobs. Well, I have. And, uh, <laughs> Shots fired. Yeah. So, interested to know who stays up for that. I guess if you would if it was your team. But 
we thought we saw this one. We thought we saw the result coming. The Titans beat the Steelers though, twenty-six to twenty-three. See, that was an upset that a lot of a lot of pundits actually said was going to happen. And watching the game back, I still thought the Steelers should have won that game. But like the pods every week, it seems like weeks ago, so we don't really dwell on it. Matt Hasselbeck, one more comeback win in him. Threw for nearly 300 yards. Beat the Steelers. And Chris Johnson nearly had a reputable game, nearly had 100 yards on the deck as well. So fantasy owners of Chris Johnson, he ain't dead yet. Even though some of you will wish he was <laughs> Going into the other early games, we won't talk about the Browns game. We'll leave that to Joe. He can he can relive that one in its full glory. Start with the upsets. The Indianapolis Colts nine. The New York Football Jets thirty five. Whoa. I'm gonna take a contrarian point because everyone's gonna go, Oh wow, the Jets um, pulled it out. They, you know, Mark Sanchez showed that they're not dead in the water yet. And with their record of three and three, they're, they're obviously not. They're still in the hunt. I will say this though. This was Mark Sanchez's third worst game as quarterback ever. Didn't throw any picks. Didn't throw any picks, but his pass completion rate was so bad that effectively the Jets had to go to the running game. If the offensive line hadn't performed as well as it did, they wouldn't have been able to take over this game as they were supposed to. We even got a little bit of Tebow trickery. We did. And that was good to see. They're, they're still designing plays for fourth down, which is, as, as an NFL coach, it's always important to try and do special teams much more than trying to establish a really good offense, I, I find. It's all about being the team that you want to be. The Jets have come out and they've said, all preseason, we want to be a smash mouth, ground and pound team that's going to stick it on the floor and we're going to beat you. This is the first evidence we saw of this. Sean Green, extremely frustrating acquisition for fantasy owners out there and Jets fans. 32 carries, 161 yards on the ground and three TDs. He was the key to the victory. He was fantastic. He had a couple of brilliant runs in for TDs down by the goal line where he was just battering people. He really looked the real deal. So this was the Jets delivering on their mission statement of being a smash mouth team. So yeah, Andrew Luck was the only rookie QB that didn't win this week and that spoiler alert. <laughs> uh, and that sets up basically my my new theory, which is this. Right now, in the NFL, we're seeing a similar changing of the guard as we're seeing with hip-hop. Okay. Earlier today, I was hanging out with our international hip-hop correspondent, Rob Percy. Hey, that's a good Monday right there. <laughs> it, it definitely was. And with that, we're seeing right now in hip-hop, we're seeing a lot of young people coming up. We're seeing Wiz Khalifa, we're seeing Big Sean, kind of replacing the older rappers, the, the Rizzas, the Raekwons. A changing of the guard in terms of, in popular consciousness, who are the young people that are coming up. Not saying that the old people aren't there. They're still there. They're still respected. They've still got their Super Bowl ring, so to speak. But right now, we're seeing the young people come up. And this week, four out of the five QBs came up trumps for their teams to win. And it's not like these teams relied on their running game or anything else. These QBs made plays in order to beat respected rookies. I'm not going to go through them because we're going to go through the games in a second, but let that be a running theme throughout. I think you make a great point, and we have to shout out Peter King and his Monday morning quarterback blog that he puts out every Monday, you should check. You should just check that out. Mm. Um, you might find some source material that we steal and put in this podcast, but you absolutely should. It's on sportsillustrated.com. And he makes a very similar point where he says, he goes into detail about how the league is changing. How look, guys like Andrew Luck and Russell Wilson and RG3 can come in now at such a young age and compete on such a level because they are so experienced. Yep. The offenses that they're playing in college and high school are so complex, they can step up and they can really, really succeed. You know, if you look at those quarterbacks, they are 13 and 16 so far. Mm -hmm. That includes, obviously, a few losses for Brandon Whedon. But 
31 touchdowns, 31 interceptions. The league is changing. You know, yeah. it's evolving as all great things do. And, you know, we spoke about this with the Todd Marinovich documentary, how a player would come in and sit for a whole season. Those days are gone. Those guys are in. Those guys are competing. Yeah. They're really put, they're, they're racking up wins and they're racking up plaudits and, and they're racking up uh, points too. So Part of it is the fans' voracious appetite. They want to see these players in the NFL immediately. They want to see how they can do. And in many ways, they want to, as soon as they, they're in the team, they can find out how good or bad they are and they can get rid of them and try and move on because everyone's, everyone's not that far away from actually being in the playoffs or being in the Super Bowl. So, you know, we're, we're seeing, like, even second-year veterans. You've got Ponder, you've got Cam, you've got players that were thrown in the deep end last year, and especially with the Vikings, they're really stepping up to the plate, and they could really be one of the best teams in the league right now. Let's get to them later. But let's focus on a rookie quarterback we were on the back of. Yes. Start of the season. He had a rough trip into the Texans' home grounds week one. Didn't play particularly well. But since then has played exceptionally well. We spoke about this team, about how good we thought they were. They're now 3-3. Three and three. Another very impressive performance. 21 of 29. Two touchdowns. No interceptions. Ryan Tannehill. Miami Dolphins. Beats the St. Louis Rams. Young Jeezy, you let us down. What happened? We're also the only pod, that, pod that's calling him Young Jeezy. And that's because we are the best pod around. Drag the leg just sounds very sexual and very wrong. It does. And <laughs> it was all set up. It was. We saw Greg the leg this week out there put on Twitter. Uh, I saw a few others as well. Don't know what it was. So the backstory, because we haven't been covered it enough, mm-hmm. but Greg Zerline, before this week, he might have been talked about as um, one of London's favourite sportsmen on a temporary basis. Yes. It was all set up. Young Jeezy. Was 15 of 15 to start his NFL career. Greg Deleg, brilliant. Started off in fantastic fashion to his NFL career. He missed three field goals this week. One was a 66-yarder, which would have been perfect redemption because he would have set an NFL record and he would have been young Jeezy again. But unfortunately, that's the reality of kicking. He missed a 48, a 32-yarder, and a pretty improbable 66-yarder, which would have won the game for St. Louis. So... We're not giving up on the rookie kickers. They continue to do great things. Unfortunately, not the best of weeks for young Jeezy. Talking of Cleveland, yep. we won't break down the result. Let's call our Cleveland fan, mm-hmm. our guy, Joe Cohen, who is currently ecstatic about the Cleveland Browns getting off the hoof. Woo! Joe Cohen's on the line. How's it going? Hey, guys. How's it going? So good, you know. You know. You know. Here's here's like the great life of a Cleveland fan when you get excited <laughs> about one win. Right? When you're more than a quarter into the season, you've got one victory and you're excited. Mm. That's what being a Browns fan is. Acorns could come oaks. Exactly. They they do. My, mighty. They do. So you will remember from last week, listeners, that we were going to get Joe on last week because we we'll talk about the Cleveland '95 documentary in a second. We were going to get him on last week because that's when it when it uh, dropped. But he was off doing other stuff. But the good thing is, is he's on this week, and Cleveland are off the Schneid. How did they get off the Schneid? How did they win? Well, you know, it was it was pretty amazing because you know, if you watch the game, and I actually went back and watched the game again on condensed version tonight. That's that's how sick I am as a Browns fan. <laughs> they win once, and I watch it twice. When they lose, I watch it four times. Be <laughs> <laughs> even more miserable than I am. Yep, yep. But but um, if you watch the game, it's really fascinating. So first of all, you know they gave up 27 points to the Bengals, who actually have some pretty good offensive weapons with Dalton and AJ Green and the like. But uh, the defense. So Joe Hayden was back this week after a four-game suspension, and I think that gave a lot of life to the defense. They found two rookie defensive tackles who are playing very well in uh, Billy Wynn, um, and now the name. Leaves me on the other defensive tackle. Anyways, the defensive line up front is playing really well. Getting Hayden back was was huge because they didn't have to play either their rookie or their second-year six-round draft pick, Buster, Buster Screen, as a starting corner against the best receiver in, in the division. Can you just um, fill people in? Why wasn't Joe Hayden playing? Joe Hayden was suspended for four games for testing positive for Adderall. 
which is like Ritalin. It's given to kids with ADHD. It's also used um, by uh, high school students in order to study for tests. Not that I would uh, it, ever know this. It is. It is. It's used by a lot of people in order to increase their concentration, but it also happens to be, unfortunately, for Browns fans, on the banned substance list. So mm-hmm. Joe Hayden tested positive. He was suspended for four games. And, you know, his return uh, surely gave a lot of life and energy to the defense. So the defense played a lot of energy. The other thing, which I think is – you know, really not gotten a lot of play so far is that, you know, Brandon Whedon is this 29-year-old quarterback. He turned 29 yesterday, rookie quarterback. Mm-hmm. They drafted. He's not the next Joe Montana, but he might be the next Joe Flacco. <laughs> Me- meaning that, like, he's serviceable in the NFL. Yeah. And, you know, he threw four interceptions in week one, and since then um, he's actually thrown more touchdowns and interceptions and has about a 60% completion rating. And then finally, you know, they've found some people who can catch the football. So they've got this guy, Greg Little, who they drafted in the second round last year in North Carolina, who's got great skills but can't seem to hold the ball. And we've had this problem before, you know, with Braylon Edwards, going all the way back to a guy named Steve Holden in 1980, I remember, who was amazingly talented who couldn't catch the ball. The Browns have always had an outstanding wide receiver who just unfortunately can't catch the ball. Um, <laughs> you can do everything but yeah, that. Yeah. Everything but what he's supposed I mean, to do. These guys, these guys, you know, in in shorts and t-shirts look amazing. Are incredibly fast, can jump incredibly high, and they forget to do one thing, which is catch the football. Um, but however, this year they've come across a couple of guys. One is Josh Gordon, who was at Baylor with RG three, and you know had some personal issues. I think he tested positive for marijuana three times. And they took a shot on him in the supplemental draft in a sec- and gave up a second-round pick next year. He's got three touchdowns all over 25 yards so far this year. Caught a 71-yard touchdown pass from Whedon yesterday. Um, and then the other one, which is really curious, is this guy Josh Cooper, who was actually at Oklahoma State with Whedon. And Whedon said he enjoyed throwing the ball to him more than he did um, Justin Blackman, who was the eighth pick in the draft. So they've actually got some guys who can catch the ball. Offensive line, you know, is has has been decent for a couple of years. So they're learning how to be a decent football team, um, and they played with with great energy yesterday. So who knows what will happen? You know, maybe they'll maybe they'll win another two or three games this year. Well, it's their first win since November the twentieth. They don't look terrible. We we try to break down every team every week to work out who's terrible. Yeah, it's good to have an opinion. But you know, let's hope they build on it. You know, it's like a bunch of rookies. Exciting, some exciting talents there. It's great to get that first win. You know, look, you're right. Uh, they're not a terrible team. They just have not learned how to win. And maybe, just maybe, this Sunday uh, they learned how to win a game. The, the other thing that's really interesting about Sunday, so there's two things about Sunday that I just want to get into for a second. So one is Sheldon Brown, who plays the other corner across from Hayden, has been with the Browns. I think this is his third year was in Philadelphia for eight or nine years before that. And, you know, this is a guy who's, like, played 160 NFL games over his career and has just gotten beaten like a rented mule for the last three years. I mean, just gets torched every week because Hayden's so good, nobody wants to throw at Hayden. So Brown gets thrown at, and Sheldon Brown had a pick six in the fourth quarter to put the game away. And you just have to wonder, you know, is this the kind of thing that helps this team learn how to put a game away? I don't know. I'm being the optimistic Browns fan once again when I, when I say it, right? Um, the other one was, and I don't know, you might have to go back and watch this, but this might be the greatest moment in the game. might be the greatest moment of Browns game so far this season, um, which doesn't have a very high bar. But if you watch the very end of the game, the Bengals have the ball. Now, the Browns are up 10 points at this point, right? Uh, 34-24, I believe the score was. And there's uh, about 30 seconds to go. The Bengals have the ball at midfield. So they're down two scores, and they're at midfield. So you think the game's over, right? There's no chance of, of the Bengals actually coming back to tie or win this game at this point, and anyone would consider this game to be over. And Andy Dalton hauls and throws deep into the end zone, and, and the Brown safety, Usama Young, picks him off. And there's, you know maybe eight seconds left, and the Browns get the ball back, and they cut to Pat Shermer, the Browns' head coach, who has not won a game in the division since he got there, started last year, 
hasn't won a game in the last 11. They cut to him, and he literally has this look on his face like, oh, my God, we may actually win this game. <laughs> <laughs> it's, 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 it's the most amazing thing. Like, they get the ball with three seconds to go, and they're up 10 points, and it finally dawns on him they may actually win a football game. It was a look of, like, such incredulity. You you just have to go back and watch it to believe it. But that's that kind of encapsulates what it means to be a Browns fan in that moment, that look on his face. Pure bewilderment. <laughs> Pure bewilderment. So that's the Browns of now. Yes. And it's all about the rebuild for them. One of the reasons that we had to get Joe on the pod, our go-to guy for all things Cleveland, Browns related, was we wanted to go back in time a little bit here. The Cleveland Browns 95, a football life documentary, is something we've been plugging on Twitter a lot. If you haven't seen it yet, we're going to put spoilers on it, but it's a factual story, so it's not really spoilers. It's also on Tumblr, so you have no excuse. No excuse. Follow the Tumblr. Go back and check that out. But we wanted to get in because it's an absolutely amazing story. Joe, can we pass it over to you? Can you just give us a background to the documentary and basically what it's about? So the Cleveland Browns were um, founded in 1950. They came into the NFL. They'd been in the uh, All-American Conference. 1950, they started playing in the NFL. And they were one of the storied franchises of the league. They had arguably the greatest player to ever play the game in Jim Brown. They had one of the great quarterbacks, in Graham, just great players across the board. And in the 1950s, they won three world championships. Uh, they They won a, their final world championship in 1964, which unfortunately for me is four years before I was born. And was I, that one year before the Super Bowl era or two? It was one year before the Super Bowl era. So it was the last non-Super Bowl they won against the Colts. You know, this was a great story franchise. In the early 70s, they were, they were bought by a guy named Art Modell, who was an advertising executive from New York. You know, in the 70s, the Browns were not a very good team. In the 80s, they actually had some good teams. Went to the playoffs, I think, seven times in the 80s. The 90s were pretty rough. And, and you can imagine being a North, well, Midwestern industrial town like Cleveland, you know, things outside of football were pretty rough in the 80s and 90s as well. So a lot of industry left the t- town. A lot of the tax base left. Um, it, you know, th- things got pretty tough for a lot of people. And in 1995... The owner Art Modell was was in a you know long negotiation with the city to get a new stadium because the stadium they play they played in was a municipal stadium that had been built in the 30s and had had it was an 80,000 seat dual purpose stadium had amazing girders about every 10 feet that blocked about 30 percent of the view of the field from every person. So in 1995. Modell announced that he was going to move the team to Baltimore, Maryland, and Baltimore had lost its team, the Colts, to Indianapolis in 1981. They had moved uh, and left Baltimore. And the magnitude of this, I don't think, can be described or underestimated in any way, shape, or form. You know, Cleveland is a football town. Northeastern Ohio and Western Pennsylvania are the cradle of football. Um, it's, you know, the game was basically invented in that area. The Football Hall of Fame is in Canton, which is about 20 miles from Cleveland. You know, even the years that the Indians were in the World Series or when the, the Cavs were in the NBA Finals with LeBron, people would get excited about it, but never, ever, ever to the extent that they would get excited for a mediocre Browns team. Cleveland is a football city through and through, and people live and die for the Browns, and, and Modell took the team and left. And it was, you know, kind of the final indignity for a town that had lost a lot, you know, over the 70s and 80s and into the 90s. And, you know, the the documentary tells the story. Now, there's two stories, actually, in the documentary. One story is about the team leaving Cleveland and and what that meant. And that actually takes a minor role, I think, in the documentary. Yeah, definitely. story, which seems to be the major story, is... 1995, the head coach of the Cleveland Browns, Bill Belichick, who went on to win three Super Bowls in New England, everybody knows. But the coaching staff that he had and the administrative staff that he had in Cleveland has gone on to basically be, I think, seven head coaches in the NFL, three in major college, two or three general managers in the NFL right now. So if we go through the list of assistants on that team, it was 
um, Nick Saban and Jim Schwartz and Eric uh, Mangini, who coached the Jets and then the Browns were on that staff. In addition to Thomas Demetroff worked for the Browns, who's now the Falcons general manager, and Mike Cannonbaum, who's the Jets general manager, was on that team. Scott Paoli, who's the general manager of the Kansas City Chiefs right now. Um, gosh, guys, there's a number of other guys who I can't remember at the moment. You probably remember. No, I think you've covered them all. I think you have. Well done. One time. <laughs> on that staff as well. And so, you know, the, the, the story they really tell about is all those guys and how desperately they wanted to return the Cleveland franchise to the glory they had in the 50s and 60s. And amazingly, in 1994, the team won 11 games. And they were poised to break through in 95. And they were even tipped to be, you know, a potential Super Bowl team that year. And I think the team started out, you know, through the first seven or eight games of the season, they were in the first place in the division. And then Modell announced publicly in the middle of the season that he was going to move the team at the end of the season. And I think he did this because word was going to get out anyways, and he wanted to get ahead of the story. And the team obviously just kind of fell apart at that point. And the season went down the tubes, and it became a self-fulfilling prophecy. There's a great moment in the documentary where Ozzie Newsom, who was a Browns great through the 70s and 80s, tight end, who was in the personnel department in Cleveland, who, when the team went to Baltimore, became the general manager, head of personnel, and won the Super Bowl there. He was the one uh, you neglected to mention off the list? Yep. I to mention off the list just because he was such a Cleveland Brown and not a guy brought in. Um, anyways, he said that Modell turned him and said, the reason I'm doing this is because I want to win a championship. And the great irony was that they had a great opportunity to win a championship in 95 in the year that Modell announced that he was taking the team and going to Baltimore, and five years later in 2000, won a Super Bowl in Baltimore. Yeah, and it's such a beautifully made documentary, and we've spoken a lot about NFL films over the past couple of weeks, and it's an NFL films production, and I think it's probably safe to say now, oh, Modell has passed, a lot of this can come to fore, but I think the thing that struck me was the things that you forget Mm -hmm. Right, the things that you had a team that was destined for greatness, yep. that had achieved greatness in the past, and it was all taken away, and <laughs> you're left with what will be. Mm -hmm. But I think Joe touches on the point, and this is the thing that grips you around the the, the Belichick story is fascinating, and we all saw how that turned out. Yeah. Maybe that could have happened at Cleveland. We all saw that, but to see those fans to have one of the power franchises in America just taken away overnight, and the reaction the fans had. Can you just talk a little bit more about that, Joe, at the time? Because we see fans going into the ground with hacksaws. I mean, no one was stopping <laughs> them. It's, the the yeah. footage is amazing. Chopping up their seats and, and, and throwing it into the crowd and stuff. Can you just tell a little bit more about how that felt and maybe tell us a little bit more about the dog pound and the history of? Sure. So, you know, you've got to remember that, that Cleveland is a very blue-collar city, um, it's always been industrial. I think Ohio is the second largest manufacturing state in America. Um, so it's always been very blue collar, very industrial, and it's always been a football town. And the Browns have always been the center of the town's cultural life. It never really had, you know, I mean, Cleveland has a great orchestra, but for the blue collar folks, that doesn't really come into play. You know, the Indians have always been there but they've always kind of played second fiddle. The Cavaliers have been there since the late 60s, early 70s, and that's kind of a nice side thing to do in the winter, but, you know, the Browns really own the town. And, you know, to have, even, you know, even having teams that were terrible, and I started going to Browns games, gosh, I think 1975, they were 3-11, three they played a 14-game season then, and Forrest Gregg was the head coach of the Browns. And that was kind of the first year I started going. And even those terrible kind of three and eleven teams, you know, people came together and that that place they would sell out, you know, seventy five, eighty thousand every week. Almost didn't matter what the quality of the football on the field was. It was about the community coming together and doing this together. And the dog pound is the way the stadium is built. If you think about it as, as a baseball stadium, 
There's a closed end where the home plate would be in baseball. And then in the outfield where you hit towards, um, at the very end, there were bleachers and the bleachers came very close to the field and they wouldn't use them for baseball. They don't use, use them for football because it's a distraction for the hitters out there and you don't really need the space anyways. So you had this, this bleacher area which held maybe eight or 10,000 people out of the 80,000. The front row of that bleacher was, was literally, you know, three or four feet from the back of the end zone. And it was known as dog pound. And all of the other seats were actual seats with backs and armrests on them, but the dog pound were just bleachers. And that was, you know, a, a kind of rite of passage where the people who were the craziest went into the dog pound and they would sit there. And I remember being at the drive game against the Denver Broncos in 1986 when the Broncos would get down near the dog pound, specifically when they were in that end zone coming out in their own territory, people in the dog pound were throwing coins and batteries at the <laughs> And, you know, you wonder, you say, why the hell would people throw coins or batteries? But you think about that metal sound hitting a helmet when you're wearing it. And it <laughs> Echoing around. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And... I remember, you know, games in the seventies against the Steelers who were the who were the great arch enemy, where there would be bonfires in the dog pound during the game. It was just it was just a, a legendary kind of place and they've recreated it to some degree now, but you know, obviously it's not like that. And so, you know, you see this in the documentary, you know, literally people's heart has been ripped out at this last game. And so in return, or in a way of expressing that, people literally literally rip the seats out of the stadium and throw them onto the field. And all these pictures of entire rows of seats being torn out by the fans and being thrown out onto the field, and it's almost a, a way of saying, you know, you've, you've ripped our heart out, and we're going to rip this seat out and, and get back to you. And, you know, it's, it's an act of, of desperation, you know, it's all, it almost reminds me of when you see, you know, films of the riots in Los Angeles, which was just a year before that or two years before that, you know, after the Rodney King verdict, you know, and people kind of torching their own neighborhood. It was the same type of self-destructive, I'm so angry, I don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to tear this stuff up. You know, it's incredibly poignant. And, um, you know, I think it's just a, it's just a, it captures kind of a sense of, what the team meant to the city and what the departure of the team meant to the people. When, for example, let's let's bring a UK example. When Arsenal moved to Ashburton to Grove, Afton. I'll do it very quickly. When when Arsenal moved to Ashburton Grove, they were offering a chance for people that were at Highbury to buy their own seats, and that's exactly what the Browns were doing there. But just in, in anger, the, this is what the fans were doing. It's Instead of buying their own seats, they were, they were chopping them up. Yeah. No, I think I think you're right, and I think one of the things that we want to do on this podcast is to is to not be afraid to go back. This is the kind of happy ending to the story in the way that we brought Joe Joe on. He's obviously an ecstatic Cleveland Browns fan where they're mm -hmm. getting their win. And you may look at the Browns now. You might be a newcomer to this sport, and you may look at them and you think, oh, don't really know what's going on here. You can see where they were, where they got to. They didn't have a team for how many seasons, Joe? Five years. Five years. They didn't have a team at all. Mm -hmm. And the team that they were went up the road and won a title with a new name and different players. Yeah. But now they have a team again. And they got the first win. Mm -hmm. And Joe and I'm sure hundreds of thousands of other Cleveland fans out there were partying hard last night. And that's the happy ending to all of this. But... There's so much history in this sport, so many amazing stories. Talking about the drive and the fumble, those are two podcasts in, in themselves. Yep. And this is what the, one of the messages we're trying to get through with this podcast. This content is out there. If you watch the documentary, if you just type it into YouTube, and then you start following the pieces that connect it, the actual footage of the game, and then you start watching the telecast of Mike Ditka and Bob mm -hmm. Costas. It's just amazing. And this is the point of all of the things we're trying to do here. Great what NFL films are doing. 
you know, they're celebrating the past, they're showing it to, um, to people and really, really publicising it. I think A Footballing Life is a brilliant series of documentaries. It's not only Cleveland 95, which is probably the best so far, but there's a bunch of other ones. The Fierce and Foursome was on this week, which is great. You have to go watch that. The story of the four defensive linemen at the, uh, at the LA Rams in the 60s. And there's a Steve McNair one on this week. So this is kind of what it's all about. You know, when LeBron James left Cleveland... Great, great basketball player, Cavs player, and did it in a very public way in that he got on national television in the U.S. and said, you know, I'm going to leave and go to Miami. And, and Sorry, hold on. I'm taking my talents to South Beach. The knife I was twisting there. the knife. <laughs> I, was, I was quoting LeBron. Sorry, I apologize. Exactly. I'm going to take my, I'm going to take my uh, talents and go to South Beach. And he did it in a way that really insulted the people of Cleveland. Mm-hmm. So LeBron went and won a title two years later in Miami, and LeBron is on the road to being forgiven in Cleveland already, a couple years later. Wow. By comparison, you know, the late Art Modell will never be forgiven. His memory and what he did to the town will never, ever, ever be forgiven by the Clevelanders, and I think that just speaks to how they feel about the Browns versus any other sport or sports person who has left the town, and plenty Right. Um, there's there's plenty of stories of great players who came up in Cleveland or through Cleveland development programs who went on to greatness in other places. But I think uh, Art Modell will will forever be the the top of the list of folks who don't get forgiven. No, I don't think so. So I think we should maybe dedicate this week's win to him. Absolutely. Sounds like a good one. Does Joe? An absolute pleasure as normal. Thank you so much. Cleveland '95 is the documentary. Cleveland Browns are the team. They are on the come up. It is official. Mm-hmm. So if you're looking for a team that is maybe doing some stuff, you're looking for a team to get allegiances. That ain't a bad team to pick from. That's for sure. Joe, thank you ever so much for coming on the pod. I'm sure we'll be able to sequester you to come back on the pod again over the next couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. I'm sure we'll find a topic to talk about. Fantasy. Fantasy. We can't talk fantasy this week, All right. but maybe we can as it comes towards yeah. fantasy playoff time. Mm, that Hopefully. Like... <laughs> <laughs> hey, one, one thing I would say, you know, just to finish off. Thanks for having me on it, and uh, <laughs> go Brown. <laughs> <laughs> Let's leave it at that. Joe, cheers. Thank you. So that's a great story, people. A football life. YouTube it. It's all there. Great stuff. Let's whip through the rest of the early games. The Philadelphia Eagles, 23. The Detroit Lions, 26. Got a shout out to our friend Sophie. Big Philadelphia Eagles fan who I saw on Thursday and she was pretty confident going into this. She was talking about how she liked the Eagles and she was impressed with what they were doing so far. I was giving her a different opinion, (laughs) how they had a habit of screwing things up and they pretty much screwed up this one. It's the, exactly the right time for the Eagles to be heading into a bye week right now because even though they're 3-3, three three, they're a bit all over the shop. They've got a strong defense which keeps them in the game, but Michael Vick, I don't even think he can hold on to his hair right now. He's fumbling everything. The, 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 the center snapping the ball and it flying past his face that is one of funny. the best shifts of the year so far, I have to say. That was funny. Maybe, maybe, maybe Vic was distracted this week. This week, I think uh, he got a new addition to his family. He bought a dog. Yeah. Apparently, he put up a picture on Twitter of him and his son, and there's some dog bis- biscuits in the background. Mm. And he had to reveal that he did have a dog. But in all seriousness, you know, he's trying to say, look, he's trying to change habits in his household and try to learn that this is how you treat a pet. In yeah. the normal world. Yeah. And, and good for him because I'm, I'm kind, to be honest, I'm kind of sick and tired of him and Nike getting a lot of grief because of what he did, what happened. I think the best is that we all move on with that one. Yeah. But the Lions, we thought they were terrible. And they might still be, but they managed to pull it out. Megatron down the stretch was just amazing. Again, you knew the ball was coming his way, but somehow he was coming up with some circus grabs. His footwork on the final drive was amazing. Beautiful. Just his toes just managed to like stick right into the ground. For a guy that big, again, he's a he's one of our favourite players, week in, week out. Still he no really TDs, is. but... One TD, just not thrown from Stafford. Oh. Sean Hill. Ah, uh, yes, I forgot. 
Talking of teams that we thought were terrible, the Oakland Raiders, 20. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, that's my new phrase for the Oakland Raiders whenever you say that name. The Oakland Raiders. Yeah, yeah. 20. The now 6-0, and only unbeaten member of the Bird Gang. Bird Gang. <laughs> By the end of this, by the end of the season, we're just gonna have completely ridiculous nicknames for everyone Good. and everyone on the team. Long may it continue. Mm-hmm. Oakland Raiders twenty, Atlanta Falcons twenty three. This was very, very close, but you just had a feeling that Oakland were gonna screw it up. Do you think Matt did? Ryan went out the night before, got incredibly drunk, thinking, "Well, the Raiders, they're a West Coast team, they're traveling two time zones across. It's the Raiders were easily gonna win. We're five and zero." Matrilice had a few Smirnoff ice. (laughs) Exactly. I can see him chilling at the bar thinking, oh, it's the Raiders. They're not going to put up anything. He threw three picks. The The same amount of picks that he threw all year. The Raiders went into this game without any interceptions, and they got three in one game. And they did some really good things. Did some good stuff on offense. Carson Palmer looked capable again. He put, put up over 300 yards in the air. But... Unfortunately, threw a pick, which as Santi Samuel went coast to coast for the score, and the Falcons ended up winning it. An unconvincing 6-0, and but 6-0 and nonetheless. In terms of the other early games, Dallas Cowboys 29, the Baltimore Ravens 31, a game that the Cowboys had a couple of real big opportunities to win. In a passing league that we're seeing, the, the effectively, let's be honest, the NFL is a passing league. It is. But the Cowboys proved that there's more than one way to skin a cat, and really, it was an absolute masterclass. The Ravens' D is not the same at all. They lost the Darius Webb for the season, and potentially Ray Lewis for the season. Do you know what Ray Lewis could be out with? Torn triceps. Yeah, I, the weirdest injury I've ever heard in my life. Yeah, I don't really get that. Was he flexing too hard after a hit, or is this an injury that Arnold knows about, maybe? Maybe, but he could be done for the year and maybe done for his career. Judging on Ray Lewis being Ray Lewis, he's probably going to want to come back, I'm sure, but he could be done for the season now. Let's be honest, ASAP Flacco did a really good job. Once again, just proving that all you need to be is competent enough in this league and you can still eke out victories. You can. and Des Bryant had a monster game. 13 grabs, 95 yards and two TDs. Showing off the real talent that he had, he dropped an absolute sitter for the two-pointer. <laughs> a sitter. And unfortunately in this game, he's going to be remembered for that. And... Dallas, driving down the field, had 20 seconds to get another playoff. Couldn't do it. Screwed that up again. Romo in the clutch. Can Let's go back. Let's go back with that Dallas thing, though. Okay. They had a chance to to go ahead. They missed. They hit an onside kick. Onside kicks this year, one for 15 in terms of actually making it done. They got the onside kick back. They drove down the field and still not nearly enough. They didn't, but looked impressive on the grounds. 93 yards for DeMarco Murray, 92 yards for Felix Jones. But lots of questions being asked about America's team this week. Game they probably should have won, but the Ravens roll on. Still one of the best teams in the AFC. Jerry Jones did say that he was sick about losing that game, especially because of Jason Garrett, a.k.a. Sergeant Brody's terrible clock mismanagement at the end. But they live to fight another day. Going on to the late games, this was the big one in week six, the rematch of last year's NFC Championship game, which fans of one of the teams would say was only lost on a certain player who should remain nameless, Carl Williams, muffing two punts that cost them the game. They thought they were the hottest team in the NFL, which... In their last two games, they'd outscored their opponents 79-3. to They were playing at home. They had the NFL's top-ranked passer in Alex Smith. They'd set a 49ers record, 
the week before with 300 yards in the air, 300 yards on the deck. The New York Giants, 26. The San Francisco 49ers, 3. No one saw this coming. Do you know what the Giants did? They did the simple thing of making Alex Smith throw long second and third down distances. They took away the run attack of the 49ers. Right now in San Francisco, they're cheering for one giant in the baseball, but the New York Giants, Eli, throwing the ball all over the shop. Victor Cruz did a salsa dance. Really, really accomplished performance there. Amazing game planning by the Giants, and they are the team, and Eli Manning is the quarterback that you never really want to root against or bet against. A lot of fantasy owners that shall remain nameless liked Alex Smith going into this game. Inye. All the stats, the writing was on the wall, but Inye's right. They made Alex Smith come out and beat them. He couldn't beat them. He threw three interceptions. Eli Manning was untouched. He was sacked six times in the NFC Championship game. And Eli, as he always does, after the game made a great point where he basically said, look, in the NFC Championship game, I had to drop back 59 times. We knew we weren't going to do that and win the game this time, Mm -hmm. so we're going to mix it up. They had 100 yards on the ground from Ahmad Bradshaw. They had uh, five yards of carry from David Wilson. Executed the game plan perfectly. Both teams are four and two. Effectively... For the New York Giants offense, it was one half where it was all passing and then one half where it was all rushing. And that's how much more balance can you get? Great victory on the road. Six and a half point underdog. New York Giants, don't count them out, people. Talking of a player that I don't think you can count out. He looked down for the count last week. Nasty concussion that was handled pretty badly by the Washington Redskins this week. Consensus was that RG3 was not going to play against the Vikings this week at home. The Redskins actually might get fined for their handling of it. It's, I will play a bit of devil's advocate for, on their behalf. This is the first major player with a concussion this season. It was in the limelight all week. He's a rookie. He's an exciting young quarterback that lots of fans want to see running around making those plays, but at the same time, the league needs to show that they've made quite a big difference in terms of concussions. And all this week coming out of the Washington media, it was, you know, RG3 had to go see an independent doctor. They weren't sure on Thursday. They weren't even sure on Friday whether or not he was going to play. But boy, if this is how RG3 plays the week after he's been knocked out. He was a real titan out there. Mm Mm-hmm. 13 carries, 138 yards on the ground and two TDs. Including a 76-yard run to seal the game. He put the Jets on there. What a player he is. An absolute stud. But the Vikings made a good show of it. Put up 26 points. Lamborghini Percy, 11 receptions, 133 yards, continuing to be an absolute stud. And Glenn Ponder, 352 yards in the air. Didn't quite get it done for the Vikes, but... Two pretty good teams, two pretty good young quarterbacks, but in the end, a win for RG3. He's some talent, that's for sure. He's going to put bums on seats every week. There's a great picture on the Tumblr of him jumping into the crowd after he scored on that 76-yard run, and the face of the woman that's next to him is absolutely priceless. Is it John Inman-esque? Or... <laughs> I'll, I'll let you decide. Okay, fine. Talking of young and exciting talents, here's another one. Up in the Northwest, third round draft choice. Another one of the young quarterbacks in Yeh was waxing lyrical about earlier. Another massively exciting talent who went head to head with probably the best quarterback out there in the game, Tom Brady. New England Patriots, 23. Russell Wilson and his Seattle Seahawks, 24. I would like to name this game. I'm taking naming rights. I'm going to call this the Ballad of Russell Wilson. Okay. Russell Wilson and the Seahawks have four four wins so far this season. Yep. And guess who he's beaten so far? Rodgers, Cam, Romo, and Tom Brady. 
This was a game that early on the Pats went out in the lead. They looked like steamrolling. Another easy victory for them. Hernandez was making it rain after scoring another great touchdown catch. Hernandez was back after his injury in week two. Gronk was playing well. Wes Welker. Pay that man. Let's be honest. That we're at this point in the season, the Patriots can't survive without him. Ten receptions, 138 yards and a touchdown. But Russell Wilson. I need to come up with a song for Russell Wilson because I, I feel... I feel like he's becoming one of our North London 40 top stars right now. We we entered this pod. We were talking about Tebow. We were talking about Ocho Cinco. No, no, no. It's complete wiping of the slate. Russell Wilson's one of our guys now. He's exciting. He makes things happen. He makes big plays. He threw for three touchdowns. That alongside Seattle having the number one defense in the NFL. It's quite a package, and they sit on top of the NFC West with an equal record of the Niners, at 4-2. and two. It's fascinating to see how that story develops. It really is. Tom Brady, America's quarterback, yep. threw 58 times in this game. The Seahawks took away the Patriots' run game, and so they could not be balanced. Last week we saw the Patriots win by having a, a more balanced approach. This week, not, not at all. Last game of the week was the late game. In a week that was full of upsets, it was apt that we ended on an upset. The unbeaten and heralded best team in the NFL, definitely the AFC going into this, the Houston Texans going up against the supposedly washed-up average Green Bay Packers. Houston 24, Green Bay 42. An absolute Aaron Rodgers masterclass. He destroyed the Texans. Was it six TDs, no interceptions? Perfect game from Aaron Rodgers, 24-37, and six TDs. Jordy Nelson, who has been a fantasy dud so far this season, nine grabs, 121 yards, and three TDs for the new version of the Kansas Comet for him. Great win for the pack. The NFL continues to be unpredictable. I don't think anybody saw that coming. They're now 3-3, three and three, a game, game they had to win. A lot of the chatter coming out of the NFL media, and we we consider ourselves we consider ourselves part of it, but of also separate at the same damn time. <coughs> a lot of chatter was saying that this was a season-saving victory, and would you agree with that, James? I think it was important. I think Green Bay, again, nobody really knew what type of team they were because their game was about their high-powered offense that, frankly, hadn't been firing as it should. Mm-hmm. So they went in against a top defense on the road, and Aaron Rodgers was Aaron Rodgers. And a virtuoso performance from him, which I think is a neutral. I think it was nice to see. Everyone loves watching that Packers offense, watching what they do. So that's week six. Let's quickly take a dive into the Pandora's box that is week seven. Lots of massively exciting games to kick off next week. Starts with the early game. Starts with two teams we've just talked about. Battle at the top of the NFC. Seattle Seahawks at the San Francisco 49ers. It's a big game. Can Russell Wilson do it again? Is Alex Smith going to be the next elite quarterback that he's going to be able to take down? (laughs) It's a fascinating prospect. It really is. But I think, you know, for all you would-be gamblers out there and all you score predictors, which we endorse fully, it's, uh, it's not legal in this country, you know, trying to pick this one is really difficult. Was last week a blip for the Niners or for the Seahawks? Who do you think? But Russell Wilson seems to be a pretty unpredictable guy to root against. And also, the last time the Seahawks played on a nationally televised game was on a Monday night, was with the replacement refs. We all know what happened there. That's a great game. Really, really exciting and a really tough one to call. I like Russell Wilson in this one. We I like to. the Hawks. What are we gonna? G- what nickname are we gonna give him? I like the Ballad of Russell Wilson because it sounds like a Simon and Garfunkel song. But we need something better. Seattle grunge. I don't know. Send us in some suggestions for the Russell Wilson nickname. If he was going to get up against the Dolphins, we could play Dolphins by Al Wilson. Searching for the Dolphins. It only works one yeah. week. Yeah. We, we need some better ones. It's a 16-week. <laughs> yeah. It's a 16-week ordeal. <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's the early game on Thursday. 
Pick of the early games on the Sunday. And the great news is we have eight early games this week. High, high potential for a quad box sighting, I would say. Pick of the early games. RG3 and his Washington Redskins. Divisional battle going into MetLife Stadium taking on Eli and the New York Giants. Should be a big game. RG3, probably his biggest game so far. Going into New York and taking on a divisional rival. Should be exciting. Baltimore Ravens are going into Houston to take on the Texans. Probably the two best teams in the AFC going head-to-head. That should be an interesting battle for sure. Only two late games on Sunday. Which, yeah, I'm sure I like that. You feel it's too stacked early? It does mean that you can probably get in a bit of Downton Abbey if you want. I don't want. <laughs> I, I, I don't want. It's just like, look, I get the scheduling and I get the time zones and West Coast teams, but it's like nine games on Red Zone, then two games. Look, I'm just, just calling it out as a fan. It's fair enough. It's fair enough. Watching the late games on Red Zone, it loses, it loses the fun of the early games because, as we said earlier, the Red Zone is the Twitter of the NFL. And if you only have two people on your timeline, it's not going to be as exciting. Balance it out. Yeah. And the two late games, we've got the Jets, the Patriots. There are a bit, there are also dud games as well, let's be honest. And the Jaguars at the Raiders. St. Jacksonville Jaguars against the Oakland, oh, sorry, against the... Oakland Raiders. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Steelers at the Bengals on the late game. And then Monday night, the NFC North. It should be a good matchup. Detroit Lions against the Chicago Bears. Make sure you watch it on the BBC. Also on the Sunday night, make sure you watch it on Channel 4. Definitely. That was week six. That was a preview of week seven. Two weeks of NFL hitting London, which we're absolutely stoked about. We've got to leave it here. It's been fun, as per normal. Thanks again to Joe for coming on the pod. And we will see you next week. Take care.